Hello and welcome. You're listening to Planet Bio. This is our weekly startup office hours, where we discuss all things at the intersection of digital and biology. Before we get started, a brief disclaimer. Planet Bio is not affiliated with any institution or organization. Views belong to those who express them. Thanks for joining us. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to another Planet Bio podcast where we talk about the intersection of digital and biology. It's again the usual crew, uh, myself, Jeff, Hamdi, and Alexa. And today we're really excited to be joined by Tess Diet. Uh, yes, yeah, so I'm in downtown Boston today, uh, meeting up with um, some local founders and investors, which is always exciting. So, uh, would you be able to start us off with an intro? You know, what are you up to these days, and how did you get there? Yeah, so it's you know it's never very a straight line of where we get, <laughs> I think. But um, never, yeah, never, so, <laughs> never. Um, yeah, so I'm Testiad. I'm a science communicator and senior bioinformatician, as well as a team lead of data science and bioinformatics at a small startup uh, company. So science communication is kind of my own company outside of my full time job. It's called Microbi Gals, and then I also host a podcast. That's kind of the intersection between history and microbiology called the micro moment. Awesome. And actually, I'd, I'd love to dig into the, the podcast and science communication experience because I think that's, that's really cool. How did you get started with that? Yeah, so it was one of those pandemic uh, experiences, kind of having too much time on your hands and trying to figure out how you can use this extra time um, to explore things that you're interested in or perhaps explore things that you think might help the community. So I often think that microbiology microbes are often thought of as pathogens, as villains, but I think that microbes have so many ways that they're beneficial to humans that people often forget about. And so during the pandemic where there's a lot of like bad press about microbes, I wanted to be sort of a voice talking about how microbes are beneficial to humans. So it started out as a blog during the pandemic and then quickly turned into social media campaigns and then eventually turned into the podcast, um, which I host uh, with my husband, who's also a microbiologist. So we're very microbe oriented over here. That's amazing. Um, and I think, uh, you know, you're in good company here, right? <laughs> with the podcasters. How do you get started with podcasting? I think that might be helpful for our listeners to hear a bit. So you've got an idea, maybe you're getting some traction in the blog and on social media, and you think, you know what, I want to give this a try and start doing a podcast. How do you actually do that? It's not as hard as I think people think it is. The hard part depends on how much time and effort you want to put into it. So as far as recording, it's pretty easy. You can do it on your phone. You can host it on yeah. um, free sites, or you can pay like a small amount of money to have a little bit better of a hosting service. But I think what is the most time consuming thing that people don't think about, it's not the recording, it's the editing. So as you're doing things, you're trying to do editing and trying to get noise reduction or take out everyone's ums, that can be really challenging, especially when you have different people you're interviewing because they can all have their different mannerisms of talking and that can get a little frustrating at times with editing. But I think on the other side, the research is really tough as well. I think in every podcast we do, it's about 10 to 15 hours of research because um, I really want to give you know the most accurate information that we can, which means you have to look at multiple sources and read multiple papers. So it's very time consuming, but I really do love 
reading and researching these things. And now I just have a head full of random facts about microbes. So the the first question I'd like to throw to you actually is a bit of, you know, you're, you're coming at a topic from an area of expertise, but how do you end up bringing your content in some amount of curiosity to your listeners? Are you thinking that you're mostly speaking to peers? Are you speaking to people that are new to the field? Are you more interested on emerging trends? Like, how have you gone about kind of curating your own discovery and how to communicate? Yeah, it's a, it's a really excellent question and one that is easy to answer, but hard to execute, I think. we I was really focused on trying to have the audience be for everybody. So talking about things that everyone can latch on to. And so I think there are lots of podcasts out there that are science driven and they are talking or trying to talk more to peers. Everything is very science oriented. What we try to do that I think is a little bit different is we try to wrap the science around things that the general public are usually interested in. So we talk a lot, we just did a season on bioterrorism, which really ties into true crime, which we all know a lot of people are obsessed about. We do a lot of history stuff, so history podcasts are really popular as well. And then we try to tie it to current events and how different people had micro moments in their history. So we're really trying to reach the general, oh, I guess the other thing is we talk a lot about homebrewing um, and the role that microbes play in our food. Because I think a lot of, like, if you can get true crime, history, and food, you're pretty much touching a lot of people's hearts. Um, so that's really what we're trying to do to reach the general public. But in doing so, we're also talking about the microbes and um, the life cycle that they may have. And so I think it is something that the general public can latch on to, but also people who have that curiosity in microbiology and may um, have a degree in it can still learn a lot. Awesome. And then I guess... Uh, a, a similarly related question to that is, uh, as a point of curiosity, what sort of emerging techniques are coming up in microbiology that you feel like is going to be unlocking new opportunities in the future? I think there are a lot of different things that are emerging in microbiology. Similar to everything right now, there's a lot of talk about Gen AI, about machine learning, and how that might help us with taxonomy classification of microbes, or even drug discovery, or finding new antibiotics. So I think there's a lot of hype around those kind of buzzwords right now, but I think there's also a lot of potential on how these new um, technologies and computational uh, algorithms might be able to help us with some of these underlying questions and things that we struggled a lot in microbiology. There's certainly a challenge of navigating what's a buzzword, what's going to stick around and what's not. Um, how do you go about like looking at these sorts of things and and thinking like, hey, this probably has some staying ability versus, uh, I'm going to keep this in the back of my mind and see if it's still around in about a year. Yeah, I mean, that's always a tough one and, and one that I think we all have to weigh in a lot. It's really easy to get caught up in the buzzwords and particularly at, in my role at a startup and being the only sort of data analysis, bioinformatics oriented person, uh, a lot of my other colleagues get wrapped up in some of these words that they hear, and then the actual execution of it, they may not know as much about. And so that can be certain pressures from outside trying to latch onto these buzzwords and implement them into um, our current trajectory, which I think has a lot of merit because it makes you think in different ways. But as far as understanding what might be there for a long time, I think it's just sort of um, understanding what the technology actually is and thinking about whether or not you have ideas on how this might 
be implemented or how it might solve the problems that you actually have and not just using it because you think it's a buzzword and that's going to get you some sort of popularity or funding from different sources. This is, is really cool. But I'd love to dig a bit more into your experience with, with startups. Um, so I know you're in academia uh, for a bit, Tess, right? And then you kind of transitioned over. How was that transition into the startup world? So, I mean, it's interesting, right? Because I did, so I did a postdoc right after I did my PhD. My PhD, uh, I defended in March of 2020. So I was the last in-person defense at my university. And then I went on a vacation oh, for the wow, weekend. Oh, wow, congrats, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, so I went on a vacation for the weekend, came back and the whole country shut down. Um, oh, not that's, a cool, time. that's cool, that's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not a great time to find a job. Um, yeah. So I ended up doing a postdoc in the same lab that I did my PhD in, which was a really good choice, I think, because I had already known the PI and I sort of had these projects that were still rolling. I didn't have to start from scratch and it gave me time to go explore other things. So I did a postdoc for about two years. And in that time, I explored a lot of different things. I was really debating on whether or not I wanted to go the bioinformatics route or um, perhaps project management or even science writing, science communication. And in those two years, I sort of explored all three of those avenues. I did a lot with science communication, both in microbial and the micro moment. But I also did some freelance writing, um, both papers and protocols for various uh, organizations. I did some science communication for other people. I wrote uh, additional blogs on various websites and even did some event planning. And all those things were really fun. Uh, and after I did all of them, I was really still at the crossroads of what to do. But the thing that I did not like so much about the science writing is the hustle that goes into it. So there's all this time that you spend trying to find new clients and understanding what their needs and wants are so that you can give them a deliverable that might be important to them. Uh, so about a year and a half into my postdoc, I started to apply to various uh, job postings. Some were on the science writing side, some were project management, and some were bioinformatics. And I just kind of left it up to fate. Whatever one uh, was going to call me back and do the interview process was kind of where I was going to go. So I ended up at a startup. I was, I think, the 10th employee at the startup. So it was very, very small, very new. Uh, and really, really exciting. So we do environmental microbiology work, but it's also the transition wasn't terrible. I would say it actually was fairly easy at a startup with 10 people. It feels very much like an academic lab. So you have a lot of people each sort of working uh, on their own projects and there is some sort of collaboration, but a lot of people are left to individually work on their projects for the greater good of the com um, for the company, which is very much like the academic setting. Um, now we're growing a little bit bigger, and I think this transition of growing the company as fast as we are is where the transition gets a little bit harder because it feels less like that academic lab feeling, and we have to collaborate more and kind of create new structures and processes that are going to help things move smoothly as the company grows. I think uh, the company that I'm at has quadrupled since and um, 18 months ago, which is oh wow, growth. wow, that's that's really really cool though. So I'd love to dig into that a bit. You know, what are specifically some of the big challenges that the 
of your mind right now? And then how do you think about overcoming those? Because I'm sure a lot of our listeners experience similar challenges. Yeah. So I think some of the biggest challenges right now is I am in this period of growing my team. So I just became a team lead. So my team is two people and trying to understand. That's awesome. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I really enjoy the managing aspect and and sort of um, giving people opportunities and projects to work on. But in in a startup, you may not have projects that people can work on immediately. So it's a lot of brainstorming of different projects. And in my role as sort of the data person, it's a very horizontal team. So we don't work on our own projects individually. We're not leading experimental design or anything, but we're leading some background things that are going to eventually help the company, such as developing pipelines or developing new data analysis or reporting um, apps. So that can be really hard because you're trying to convince people that your services are very necessary and you can help people change in some of the ways that they've done things in the past to make it more automated or faster. But at the same time, as as these requests come in for different things that they might have, you have to manage your time of the team because it can be quickly overwhelming um, when you're a team of three and a company of 40 and people are starting to ask you to do a lot of things. So I think those are kind of the main challenges and we're working on processes and standards in order to overcome these things. I think sometimes, I think communication is always at the bottom line of any sort of challenges and struggles and overcoming them because communication can really allow you to understand someone else's perspective and what they may need or want from your team as a horizontal lead. So we work with commercial people um, who have a totally different perspective than the engineers, who have a totally different perspective than the wet lab team. And each one has different needs. And when you talk to them, everyone communicates differently. And I think that is a big role of data science is to be able to communicate, data science and bioinformatics, to be able to communicate with each of those different languages and give them a deliverable that is actually going to make their life easier. And that doesn't come internally from my team. That comes a lot from that communication and understanding other people's pain points. Oh, that's awesome. And I I think you touched on a really common theme, right? Which I I hear quite a bit, which is standards and protocols and policies can sometimes get a bad rap, right? But at the same time, they're critical. They actually can make life way easier uh, and and more streamlined when done correctly. I was curious to get your thoughts. When do you think the right time is for startups to establish standards and and protocols? Because you don't want to do it too early, right? But as you said, not too late. I don't know. Do you think you hit the timing right? Do you think you wish you would have done it later, earlier? What are your thoughts on that? I think that, yeah, that's a really hard question to answer. Uh, and it probably depends. Yeah, probably on nuanced, the, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it depends. I started really early at my company to try to get standards and processes. So I think there are some people who don't like standards and processes and protocols. And then there are some right, people that right. really like them because they can streamline things and they can understand what they're doing better. And if you're one of those people that like standards and protocols and processes and you're with, 
people that don't like that, I think you have to start a lot earlier because it's going to be a little bit more of an uphill battle to get people on board with your standards and processes and, and starting to develop those. But I think if you're if those are the minority of people, then you should probably wait a little bit longer so you can understand your own protocols and processes within the the lab group or within the company group. Yeah, that's that's great. And in addition to starting earlier, if I'm working with a team that is very standard averse, right, and, and wants to stay as, as scrappy and, and ad hoc as possible for as long as possible, what are some other tactics you found to help to, to work with that type of situation? Yeah, so I've, I've found that those people who are very steadfast and sort of their own ways of doing things are actually people who come directly out of their PhDs and less so with the people that have been in industry for a long time. And I think that's just a matter of experience. I think people who have just come out of their PhD, they're so used to doing everything on their own and they've developed processes sure, yeah. in the five or seven years that they've done their PhD. And it can be really hard for them to let go, let go of data analysis or let go of any part of what they're doing to trust other members of the team. Whereas oh, some yeah. of the other people that have more experience, they know how to work in a team, they know how to collaborate, they know what benefit it can have to let go of some of these responsibilities so they can focus on their job. So yeah, I think it's it's definitely a big struggle and I think it really comes down to communicating with them and trying to understand like what is the small piece that you're willing to sort of give up and and have this trial to see if it's going to benefit you and let's see if we can just get that one step and show and see whether or not it's going to help. And if it doesn't, let's you know, try a different step, or maybe we won't do that for a little bit. And if it does help, now you can take the next step and the next step. So I think you got to start really small and, and sort of work with people that might be a little bit more on the wanting to do everything for themselves. Right. Yeah, that, I think that's really helpful. And I, I've seen that too, right, uh, with with founders and CEOs, but I think leaders in general, right? And I think everyone goes through, like you said, you know, you you come from maybe uh, a scientific background, um, you come from a sales background or whatever. Uh, but yeah, like you said, right, it's, it's a little difficult sometimes to let go of it and take on that broader perspective, right? Um, it's really easy to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a scientist, uh, so I, I hang out with the scientists, right? <laughs> right? Instead yeah, yeah. of, you know, trying to take on that broader perspective and learning those, those new things. Thanks for that. Um, I, I liked how you gone through the idea of the little steps are needed to kind of make a process work well together. And there's a lot of decision-making loops, and I think we've been indirectly discussing some of that. And I guess to take it a bit more human and personal is, what were the decision-making loops that made you think, hey, I wanted to end up in biology in the first place, and specifically microbiology? Like a lot of you know, biological groups, um, uh, for those listeners who may not have PhDs, uh, tend to have rotations where people try to find that. So what was that kind of discovery process like for you? So I, I discovered my love for microbiology in undergrad. I was very 
I started undergrad, I switched schools. I was, I don't know, I switched my major probably seven or eight times. I wanted to do genetic counseling at first, but they didn't have any room in the program. So they said, take microbiology because it has almost all the same courses with a few caveats. So I took micro, I fell in love with it kind of instantly. And from there, I was just taking micro course after micro course. But what was different for me than I think a lot of other people who fall into microbiology is I never wanted to do microbiology in the pharma setting or in human microbiome or human microbiology or drug discovery. I think all that stuff is super important and people that have that mindset are doing wonderful work, but it was just never something I was passionate in. Uh, I'm always loved the environment. I've always been an environmentalist. And when I found out that microbes could actually help us overcome some of these sustainability challenges that we're facing, it just opened up a whole new world for me. And so going to my PhD, I was really trying to, I, we did rotations in the PhD to try to find which professor was going to become um, your PI in the long run. And finding someone who was doing environmental microbiology that would allow me to sort of learn microbiome processes was really hard. And finding that person took me four or five rotations, um, which was more than a lot of my peers. But it was nice to actually find somebody that would do environmental microbiology. He didn't really know a lot about microbiology or microbiome, but he at least had a project that involved it. Um, so I spent a lot of time kind of teaching myself about bioinformatics and microbiome and the environment. I did my PhD on grapevines. But that's what's so great about, I think, microbiology and microbiome and bioinformatics is that all those skills and that knowledge and that theory can be applied to all the different sectors of microbiology for which you know there are hundreds of different hosts that you can do. You can do humans, you can do mammals, you can do ocean, you can do agriculture. Uh, so I think there's just like so much opportunity for microbes. And I have such a deep love for it. Uh, I I wish there was a camera uh, function on now. You would see me smiling very hard about the passion of trying to see many different collisions of one's thought of opportunities of ideas. Um, and I guess related to that thought of like, you know, when you find a lab, it, and this has been a long running thought of my own is, you know, and it's not just my own is mentorship, right? Um, you know, we we are who we are trained by. And to some extent, you've now like reached this transition of like, what was it like figuring out that, you know, mentor-mentee relationship when you were going through training? And now, as you mentioned earlier, you're starting up uh, a, a group. How do you go towards thinking about being a, a mentor and a guide for others? Yeah, that's such a tricky question. I think when I when I was getting my PhD and doing those rotations, I was so obsessed with finding the project that I didn't really think a lot about the mentorship. And now that I'm out of my PhD and had some time to reflect as I, I got through some of the early years, that's one of the first things I tell people going to a PhD is you really have to pick your PI based on what you want out of a mentor. Some people like really hands-on mentors. I tend to tend to not like hands-on mentors. So my PI was very nice. We didn't have a very good mentor-mentee relationship. It was very much, here's your project, go figure it out, uh, which I, I enjoyed because it did teach me a lot of things. And 
I ended up doing a lot of project management management because of it. But it is a struggle to kind of do everything on your own, and it can slow you down in some aspects. And I think when you transition to being more on the mentor role, you think of those times when you were a mentee and try to figure, I think most people think about what they didn't like and how they can do it better with the people that they have. And so my mentees that I currently have now, we meet very regularly um, for them to give me feedback and for me to give them feedback. So I think it is definitely a, a two-way street, especially since, you know, this is my first time being a team lead. There's always ways to improve and they're the ones that are going to know um, the best. But I think as a mentor, one of the most important things that you can do is empower your mentees. and allow them opportunities to gain confidence with those opportunities, not something that's going to crush uh, their confidence. Like we do, like sometimes public speaking, if you have to do public speaking in front of the C-suite and uh, this is your first job, that's terrifying. But if you do public speaking and, and do some presentations with your peers where everyone's kind of a lot nicer to you perhaps, or it's a lot less intimidating, I think that is, a form that you can give them to empower them. Um, and I think that's really important to me as a mentor is to make people feel like one, they have a lot to teach the world and two, they can find ways to enhance whatever soft skills or hard skills that they might be working towards. Oh, that's great. And then do you have a favorite microbe? I mean, uh, my PhD was working a lot on B cell species and kind of understanding the biophysics there. And I always find it weird that sometimes everyone has kind of a slightly preferred model system that they kind of still refer back to in their head. On podcasts, I always ask this question, but to be honest, I don't think I've ever thought about it on my own. And I like to think that I'm very um, microbial. I have equality in my microbe love because I do like the I think fungal microbes have a lot to offer the world and they're often not studied because they're a little bit more challenging um, but so do bacteria and so do viruses so I think all three of those domains uh, or even microscopic eukaryotes um, they all have something to offer and they all can be interesting when you start digging into how they interact with the world or how they've changed society. So I really love that aspect of how microbes might have shaped the earth. And I think a lot of fungal species have shaped sort of the environment, but a lot of bacteria have shaped human history. When you think of, uh, you know, as Bacillus anthracis, that we learned about germ theory and that started to be popularized. Uh, a lot with tuberculosis or Vibrio cholera, Yersinia pestis, shaped the way that people interacted with the environment and their understanding of contagious diseases uh, and what we think of as good hygiene as well. So I think there's lots of ways that microbes, that I have love for microbes. I don't know if I have a single microbe um, or a model system that I love more than others. Love that question and, and answer. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Tess. It was really great having you join us. Uh, any final um, thoughts or, or advice for uh, folks who are out in the startup world and the microbial startup world? Yeah, I mean, it's a pleasure to be on, on Planet Bio, so thanks for having me. I think my final words of advice is just all about communication. And if you can communicate with people, you can 
you can go far. Love it. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us again and hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. You too.